Uh, So if you haven't opened your Bibles, uh, please do so to Exodus 26, as Jesse so wonderfully read for us. Uh, The title of my message this morning is The Nicest Tent in Town. So I grew up in small town Nebraska, and most everyone in the town was at the same sort of socioeconomic status. Uh, some, some had more money, some had less, but, but pretty even and equal all throughout the town, which meant most homes in the town were the same. Not, not necessarily looked the same, but about the same quality and the same level. But there was one part of town where the homes were nicer, down by the river. So unlike living in a van down by the river, living in a house down by the river in Dakota City, Nebraska, some of you got that reference, some of you didn't. (laughs) Those of you over 40, maybe. (laughs) But living down by the river in Dakota City, Nebraska, usually meant you had a nicer house. This is where the two-story houses were. The houses that had some brick and a two-car garage, maybe a pool in the backyard. And the backyards backed up to a park, and you had a view of the Missouri River. So these houses, in in retrospect, fairly modest comparatively, but in my young mind, and comparatively, a lot about a person's status. You can look at someone's home, and you can have a sense of how much money they make, and their, their, their wealth, and maybe even their position. And to some degree, this is okay. If you can afford a larger house with more space, a nicer home, you should do that. If God has blessed you with those resources, and it's a wise decision, go ahead and experience the good and the blessing of that. There's a reason that professional athletes and celebrities and entertainment stars have large homes because they make a lot of money and they can afford it and it sort of of displays their wealth and their prestige. And then you think of people who have positions of power. Like it is good that the president of the United States lives in the White House. That reflects that position. You think of uh, the queen, now king of England, living in Buckingham Palace or Windsor Castle. Like that reflects their status appropriately. So homes can tell us something about who lives there. So here in Exodus, we see that the Lord instructs the people of Israel to build them a home. We see this first in Exodus 25. You are to build me a holy place a dwelling place, specifically a tent, a tabernacle, tabernacle where, where I am going to dwell. It is going to be set apart and distinct. It's holy, but I'm going to dwell with you. And so he says, gather gold and silver and bronze and purple and blue and scarlet yarn and fine linen and, and fine leather and goat hair, all these wonderful materials. Assemble them together to build me a distinct and a unique house. Build me the nicest tent in town. And why is this? Well, why, why is Israel to build the Lord the nicest tent in town? Because this house is going to say something. This tent is going to communicate something to Israel about who the Lord is. And here's, here's the central point of it. Here is what this tabernacle communicates, that it is a high and holy God who dwells with his people. Well, what the tabernacle is going to communicate to the people of God and what communicates to us today is that it is a high and holy God who dwells with his people. And so as we have been doing the past few weeks, we are going to look at the features of the tabernacle to see what they tell us about who God is and what it means to dwell with him. Last week, Pastor Paul looked at some of the furniture, and the week before, I looked at the ark. So we've talked about the furniture and what that says about God. Now we're going to talk about the house itself, the tent itself, and how it displays and how it declares that it is a high and holy God who dwells with his people. So Exodus 26 gives us the description and really dimensions of the tabernacle. And then 
Uh, We're not going to read it, but if you jump ahead to Exodus 27 in verses 9 through 19, you get a description of the courtyard, uh, the, the, the description and dimensions of the courtyard that surrounded the tabernacle. And so similar to the furniture, we don't know 100% what it looked like, but we have pretty good guesses. And so here is a pretty good rendering of what the tabernacle along with the courtyard probably looked like. And so if we first start with just the tabernacle itself, the tent itself, this was a structure that that the CSB actually translates it into feet for us. But if you read it in the original Hebrew and other English translations, you'll see that the actual tent itself was 30 cubits long by 10 cubits wide by 10 cubits high. And then the the tent was divided into two rooms. And so the first room, as the the priest would enter into the, the tabernacle, was called the most holy place. And this was 20 feet by 10 by 10. And this holy place is where the, the table uh, and the, the lampstand and the altar of incense were. And then you moved past that first chamber into the inner chamber, which was called the most holy place or the holy of holies. And here's where it gets interesting. The holy of holies was a perfect cube, 10 cubits by 10 cubits by 10 cubits. And so in scripture, the number 10 represents completion and perfection. And you think about what was in the most holy of holies. There was the Ark of the Covenant. And what did the Ark have? It had the Ten Commandments. And so within the room that held the Ten Commandments, the very design and structure and size of it pointed to perfection. Where God's presence dwelt on the Ark, it was a room that signified perfection. A high and holy God dwelled there. And then if we jump again to Exodus 27, the courtyard itself was 100 cubits long by 50 cubits wide. And then you had an entrance that was about 20 cubits with two 15-foot cubits on the sides. And so I'm not going to get into the weeds here as far as the dimensions, but if you look at the details of the dimensions, here's what you're going to see. You're going to see ratios and proportion that add up to a perfectly and beautifully designed structure. That, that each of the proportions work in concert with each other to give this beautiful symmetry to the design of the tabernacle and the courtyard. But here's where the, the features of the tabernacle really come into focus, is when in the, the, the support structures and the curtains. Because remember, at its most basic, this is a tent. This is a tent meant to be set up and taken down. So production team, you think you have you know, a lot of work on a Sunday morning to set up? Hey, the priests feel your pain. Like they knew all about mobile church. <laughs> and so it was a tent. And we get in Exodus 26, verses 1 through 6, a description of the curtains. And it starts with the inner curtains. And these curtains were made of blue and purple and red yarn, the colors of wealth and royalty. They had golden hooks on them. And so the, the curtains themselves displayed royalty, wealth, importance. But then in the curtains were woven in the design of cherubim, the same angelic beings, if you remember a couple weeks ago, that were carved into the mercy seats that sat atop the ark. And why are these these beings, this design important? Because if, remember back what Psalm 99.1 tells us, that the Lord sits enthroned among the cherubim. So when the priest walked into the tent 
and he looked around at the design of cherubim staring him in the face, he was reminded, hey, you have entered into the presence of God. Hebrews 8 tells us that the tabernacle was a copy, an earthly copy of a heavenly reality. What was displayed on the curtains mirrored what was in heaven, God enthroned, God in the presence, surrounded by cherubim. And so this signaled that the priest had entered into the presence of God. And then the support structure, the support structures within the tabernacle, they, the bottoms of them, the bases of them had silver. And this sort of represented a, a step away from God. Still, uh, still, still precious metal, but not as close to the presence of God. But the rest of the support structure was inlaid with gold and the crossbeams inlaid with gold. Royalty, wealth, extravagance, meant to display that a king lives here. A high and holy God dwells here. And then we also get a description of the curtains that went over the top of the inner curtains. And so you, you have, this is in verses 7 through 14, you have curtains that hung over that were made of goat hair. And then you had another curtain that went over that was made of dyed ram skins. And then another curtain that the CSB translates as fine leather, but in the, the Hebrew it literally means porpoise skin. Skin of a dolphin. Something that was uh, water resistant. So there was a practical function here. The, these outer curtains were meant to protect the, the, the inner curtains that weren't made of as sturdy stuff. But there's also something symbolic here. That the covering created a distance, a separation. That the presence of God was separated from the people and separated from the earth in some ways. And then if you see that there's a, a ram skins dyed red, the implication here, the symbolism here of sacrifice, that in order to enter into the presence of God, blood had to be shed. And so these outer curtains represented the separation between what is earthly and what is heavenly and what is holy. You don't just enter into the presence of God sort of casually. It's not open. It's not an open air for everyone to just sort of see. No, that is special. It is distinct. It is set apart. And the curtains covered that. Then if we look at the description of the, the structure of the courtyard, what is set up there, this is where things also continue to get interesting. So, so the courtyard structure, and if you can put that, that picture back up for us. Thank you. So you can see that around the courtyard, there was also uh, screens that were, were hung, and you had an entranceway that was also uh, had a, 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 the design there was especially um, sort of elaborate compared to the rest of the screen. But those posts, those outer posts, at the bottom of them, they were tipped with bronze. They had bronze bases. And again, this represented a sort of a step away from the closeness of God. The, the, the courtyard was still... Uh, outside and separate from the presence of God in some ways. It was still representative of sort of being in the earthly realm. And so the, the bottoms of those were tipped with bronze, but the tops were tipped with silver. They had silver tops. And this is interesting because if we do a little bit of connection here, what also was tipped with silver? The bottom of the tabernacle. So if we sort of visually look at the visual cues and we match up the silver, though this wasn't functionally happening, but symbolically what is represented, that the tabernacle was sitting on top of the courtyard, representing that the presence of God was actually above what is earthly. And so the silver sort of shows us how we're supposed to visualize where this tabernacle is sitting, where the tent is actually sitting. It is above 
God is elevated above. And here's where this continues to get interesting, the implication of this. The idea is, is that as the priest went from the courtyard into the tabernacle, he is being brought up into the heavenly places. He's being brought up into the presence of God, surrounded by the cherubim. And so it's kind of the sense of leaving earth and then moving up into the heavenly realm where God sits enthroned in the heavens. And then for the high priest to move into the Holy of Holies is actually into the very throne room of God. And so in the, the design, in the symbolism, in the materials, we see that it is a high and holy God that dwells with his people. It is a high and holy God who dwells in this nicest tent in town. Then Exodus 26 ends with the description of two curtains. One separates the holy place from the most holy place, and then the one that hung in the entrance of the tent itself. So within the tabernacle and even in the courtyard, there's this, this ascending closeness to God. You enter in through a doorway into the very courtyard. Then you enter into the tent through another curtain. And then for the high priest to enter into the most holy place through another curtain, there is this ascending access to God. It's not something that could be taken lightly. At each new access point, there's a curtain forbidding direct entry. And there's really no direct entry into the holy place, and certainly not the most holy place, because only one person had access there and only one day per year. So the very nature of the tabernacle with its curtains and its sort of ascending access points show there's a high and holy God who dwells here that we cannot approach casually. And in this, here is where we again get into the tension of Exodus. This is where the, the tabernacle raises attention for us that, that we have to sort of take into consideration and come to grips with. God dwelling with his people, yes, but yet there is still a distance. There's still a separation. God dwelling with his people, yes, but there is this sense of close but not too close. And we see this repeatedly throughout the book of Exodus. There's a tension. There, there's a sense of God intends to dwell with his people, but yet we can't get too close. We can't go all the way, all the way up to the presence of the Lord. Now, on the one hand, this emphasizes just how high and holy God is. We're sinful. He is not. He is high and holy, and we are not. And so there is this natural separation that happens. But what this also points to is an incompleteness. It shows that the separation that was created by sin for all the sacrifices that are done, and the, and the Passover lamb, and, and, and the, 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 the tabernacle that is built, and all the furniture that is there, that gap has not been closed, at least not fully. For all of that infrastructure, and for all the good that it displays, it, it cannot close the gap completely, that separation completely. And so there's a tension here, and the tabernacle itself tells a story in that tension. See, in, in the features of the tabernacle, we're actually pointed back. Remember how in, when we were going through the Ten Commandments, it felt like every week we were going back to the book of Genesis? Here we go again. <laughs> we are going back to the book of Genesis. The, the tabernacle points us back to the book of Genesis in the garden. You see, the garden, did, did you know the garden is not just a garden, it's a temple? But the garden is where the presence of God dwelled, which is the very definition of a temple, where the presence of God dwells. God dwells there. And the description of the garden is a description 
of a, a place where there is pure gold and, and, and fine gemstones. There, there, there's richness there. There's wealth there. And, and there's trees there that are beautiful to the sight and good for every kind of food. And the tree of life is there and the tree of knowledge there. So this richness, this beautiful, lush scenery, the this, this sense of what, what is here is good, overflowing with good. It's, it's a temple worthy of a high and holy king. And in that place, in that garden, in that temple, God dwelled with Adam and Eve. He dwelled with them in perfect closeness and relationship. It wasn't close, but not too close. It was just close. And yet, sadly, because of sin, that relationship is broken. And because of that sin, God actually exiles Adam and Eve out of the garden, out of his presence because of sin. And what does he do? He sets at the east entrance a cherubim. He sets cherubim there to guard the entrance to the garden so they cannot come back into the presence of God. To do so would mean death. And did you notice the detail in the description of the tabernacle? Which way is the tabernacle facing? East. The entrance faces east. It is set up to mirror the garden. And then when the, the, the priest entered into the tents and before he got to the holy of holies, what was staring him in the face in the curtain? A cherubim, barring access to the presence of God. Features in the tabernacle meant to mirror, meant to mirror the garden. There's, there's a, a sense where the tabernacle is a mini Eden of sorts. And then what do you have in the Ark of the Covenant? You have God's word, which is what? Knowledge. What did you have in the garden? A tree of knowledge. And then as Pastor Paul pointed out last week, that the lampstand and the, the way that it was designed was meant to mirror the tree of life. And so in these particular details, the tabernacle is meant to point us back to Eden. Why? Because it points us back to Eden to, to show us that God has not abandoned humanity to its sin. God's not abandoned us. God intends to dwell with his people. God has once again drawn near, and he tends to draw people near to him. However, however, in mirroring Eden post-fall, it shows, the tabernacle shows, hey, this is not the complete story. God's purpose to dwell with us, God's purpose to restore that relationship, as great as the tabernacle is, is not the fulfillment of that purpose. There's still a gap there. There's still a close but not too close. The story isn't over. So the tabernacle points us back and shows us what was lost, but shows us what God intends to restore. But it's not in the tabernacle itself. The tabernacle itself has not fulfilled that purpose. And so the story doesn't end there. And so in this way, the tabernacle continues to point us for, further. And so let's continue the story. The tabernacle is for a people who are on the move. It's for Israel as they are wandering through the wilderness. It's a portable, portable worship space, so to speak. It's a portable house. But once they arrive in the promised land, after a time, they eventually build a permanent house for the Lord under King Solomon. King Solomon. They build a temple, and this temple is glorious. Twice the size of the tabernacle with added porches and rooms, and so it is the most beautiful house that Israel could build for the Lord. And on that day when they dedicate the temple, the ark is brought into the Holy of Holies and the presence of God fills the temple. 
and there is rejoicing, and there is celebration, and they sacrificed 22,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep. That's like the biggest barbecue in history. Celebration, it is the high point of Israel's history, really. The Lord is dwelling with us in power. We, have, we are established in the land. We have built him a house, and there is joy, and there is celebration. However, amidst all of that, as great and as glorious and as grand as that was, it's still close but not too close. There's still a gap there. The purpose hasn't been fulfilled. The story isn't over. There's still something missing. And so the story continues. And sadly, the story takes a dark turn as Israel gradually moves further and further and further into sin. Eventually, the kingdom is split, and eventually, as a sign of judgment, God sends Assyria and Babylon to essentially destroy and defeat Israel, and they are carried into exile. And as part of that, the temple is destroyed, completely leveled. It's a sign that of, of the deep fracture and breaking of the relationship between God and his people. The way Ezekiel describes it is he sees the, the spirit of God leave the temple, essentially. But in the midst of that, God does not abandon his people to sin and judgment. He promises hope. He promises restoration. He promises salvation. The story isn't over. As dark as it got, the story was not over. And so there is this promise held out for the people of God. And less than 50 years later, the exiles are able to return and they rebuild the temple. And again, this is a mo monumental moment for them. Now, the temple isn't as big as the, as the one Solomon built, but it is a temple. But at the dedication of this temple, you only get 100 oxen and like 200 lambs and like 400 sheep. So far less than what was initially sacrificed. So the party's a little smaller. But even more, here's what doesn't happen. The ark is not brought into the Holy of Holies. And even more, the Spirit of God does not fill that temple. And so while they've established this space for worship, the Spirit of God has not entered into it. And so there is this declaration to them, hey, that hope of restoration, this is not it. There's still something missing. There's still close but not too close. The story's not over. There's still this sense of separation. And this is where Israel exists in this sense of incomplete, incompletion and waiting and longing for well over 500 years. But then the Apostle John breaks that silence with these words, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word has dwelt among us. And that word dwelt in Greek is the same word that is used for tabernacle, tent. The Word tabernacled with us. Once again, God has come down to dwell with his people, not in a tent, not in a temple, but in Jesus Christ. Once again, God has come to dwell, but he, when he comes to dwell with us, he comes as a man. He comes as someone that we can hear and we can see and we can look into his eyes and we can hear his voice and we can talk to him and we can touch him and be touched by him and we can hug him. Uh, God has come and he breathes our air and eats our food and, and walks on the same earth that we walk on. God has come close in Jesus Christ. Now, don't miss this and don't forget this. Though God has come as a man, though God has come as a lowly man, 
don't forget who he is. As the Apostle John will describe Jesus, the glorified Jesus in the book of Revelation, his face shines like the brightest sun. His eyes are full of fire and his voice sounds like a, the, the, the raging sea. Jesus Christ is the high and holy God who has come down as a man. And Jesus coming changes everything. Jesus coming is different because Jesus doesn't come to dwell in a tent or in a temple. He is the temple because the fullness of God dwells in him because he is God. And when Jesus comes, he comes on a mission. There's a scene in John 2 where Jesus goes into the temple and he goes and confronts those who are corrupting the temple with commerce. And he makes this statement, destroy this temple in three days, or in three days I'll rise it up again. And they're laughing at him like, how is that possible? They think he's talking about the temple. But no, he's talking about the temple himself. And just as Solomon's temple was destroyed as an act of judgment, Jesus himself was struck down in judgment. Not because of his sin, but for you and me. Jesus was struck down. The temple was destroyed as a payment for our sin as a sacrifice for our sin, so that the debt of sin that we owed and could never pay would be paid. So Jesus is the temple struck down as a sacrifice for our sin. But unlike Solomon's temple, that when it was rebuilt, it was rebuilt in lesser glory, when Jesus is resurrected, he was resurrected in even greater glory. He is full of the Holy Spirit. He is fully transformed, victorious over sin and evil and death. Jesus has the fullness of the spirits. And then what does he do? And this is the game changer. What does Jesus do? He ascends into heaven and then he pours out the spirit on his people. Acts chapter two. The spirit of God is poured out on to his people. So what does this mean? The spirit of God doesn't dwell, just dwell with us, it dwells in us. Because of Jesus, where is the temple? Where is the tabernacle now located? Look around for City Church. In us. In you. And in us. That the presence of God that used to dwell in a tabernacle, in a temple, now dwells in his people. The, the, the beauty of what Jesus Christ has accomplished is that God has now so close that he dwells in us. That, that curtain that separated the Holy of Holies, when Jesus was sacrificed, it split from top to bottom so that we now have full access. It's no longer close, but not too close. It's only close. And how close? He dwells in you. He dwells in us. That's how close he is. That, that beautiful tent, that beautiful tabernacle with all the gold and the silver and the, the blue and the purple yarn and the, the, the wonderful gold furniture. And you think of the, the beauty of Solomon's temple. All of that, the, the nicest tent and the nicest temple in town. Where is that now? Us. Jesus has made us the nicest tent in town. The spirit of God, the presence of God now dwells with his people. That broken fellowship that broken relationship, that distance, that the sacrifices of bulls and goats and Passover lambs and, and tents and tabernacles and temples could not close the gap. Jesus has closed that gap. Jesus has closed that gap. He has brought us near. He has brought us close. And now the very presence of God dwells in us individually, but even more so in us as a people. Listen to how the Apostle Paul describes it. 
in, in Ephesians chapter 2. He says this, For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens and saints and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him the whole building being put together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together for God's dwelling in the spirit. God himself has built a house. Jesus is the cornerstone. And what are the building materials? Us, you and me. We have been made the temple of God by the power of the Holy Spirit because of Jesus Christ. The gap has been closed. Jesus has restored with the sacrifices, with the tabernacle, what the temple could never restore. Jesus fulfills God's purpose. He fills in the missing piece. Jesus is the rest of the story here. So with the tabernacle, the tension that the tabernacle pointed to, the close but not too close, that gap, that distance that needed to be resolved for God to fully restore that relationship that was once in the garden, this is the power of the gospel. This is what Jesus Christ has done. The fullness of God's plan. That God would dwell so close, not that he just dwells in a tent in our neighborhood, as cool as that is, no, that he actually dwells in us. He dwells in his church. He dwells in his people. I hope that changes your perspective of yourself. I hope that changes your perspective of what the church is. I hope that changes the perspective of the power of God in your life. Because we can hear this story and we can go, cool story, man. Like, that, 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 that's a cool story. Oh, yeah, I see that. I see, you know, temple throughout the scripture and I see how Jesus fulfills that. Neat. But what difference does it make? Like, what difference does any of this make? What difference does it make that God comes to dwell that a high and holy God comes to dwell with his people? I mean, that's a good question to ask. It's a legitimate question to ask. Because, friends, this is not just a story in the sense of a nice story we tell. This is truth. This is reality. This is what God has actually done in history. And so it does matter. It does make a difference. So what is that difference? Well, let's just start here. It is good to be in the presence of something greater than ourselves. Like, we, we go and we spend time in nature. We spend time around beauty. We, we may go to the mountains or the Grand Canyon or the ocean or, or just take a hike out in Fontenelle Forest. Well, wherever it may be, we, we go out and we surround ourselves with beauty and greatness. Why? Because it does something to our souls. It enlivens us. It enriches us. It deepens us. There's a health that comes so listen, just being in the presence of beauty and glory and goodness is good for us. It's good for our souls. So just at a baseline level, I think we recognize being in the presence of a high and holy God who is goodness, who is truth, who is beauty, brings a goodness. But there's more. See, when God comes to dwell with his people, he brings rescue and redemption. When God comes to dwell with his people, he brings salvation. We see this in the book of Exodus. When God first came near, he came down to rescue Israel out of slavery to Egypt. And then we see in Jesus Christ, God has come down to rescue us from sin and evil and death. You see, when God draws near, he brings salvation. So listen, are you in need of forgiveness? 
Do you recognize your need for forgiveness? Do you recognize that you have sinned against God and other people and you carry guilt and you carry shame because of that? Hey, friends, it makes all the difference that God has drawn near because, because when God draws near, he brings salvation. And there's hope for you. There's salvation. There is forgiveness. There is rescue. There is redemption for you. Also, when God draws near, he brings freedom. He brings freedom. He rescued. He brought them out of slavery so they could live in freedom. When, Jesus, when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, he breaks the power of sin in your life. You're no longer its slave. Do you feel handcuffed by your sin? Do you feel enslaved by your sin? Is there this sense of just like, oh, I wish I could break free of this. I hate this. Friends, when God draws near, he brings freedom. That is the good news of God drawing. That's the difference that it makes. When he draws near to you and you draw near to him, there is freedom for you. Also, when God draws near, he brings righteousness. Like, do you ever just, do you ever just like feel tired of all the evil, all the brokenness, all the pain, all the suffering, all the evil? I mean, just is there just ever this, you're just like, ah. When God draws near, he brings righteousness and he defeats the darkness and he pushes it back. Look, I understand. You look all throughout history and it seems like evil can just be so overwhelming. And there has been evil empires and evil systems and even today, it can feel overwhelming. But here's what history also tells us, that every single one of them have fallen and every single one of them will fall. Because when God draws near, he brings righteousness and he defeats evil. He pushes back darkness. And what he does in the world, he does in us as well. He comes near us and he gives us his word. And through his word, what does he do? He transforms us and changes us, makes us righteous. He, he transforms us so that we can walk in the goodness of righteousness. And rather being slaves to our sin and rather than than walking around in just this frustration all the time and, and, and hurting others and sinning against others. No, God changes us and he brings righteousness so that we can be a righteous people. That is the good news of when God dwells with his people. And we can continue. When God dwells with his people, he brings power. His spirit empowers you. You don't do this in your own strength. It's not, hey, let me, let me uh, live by my own discipline and put my hope in my own ability here. No, he brings power. He empowers you with the Spirit. When God draws near, he brings love and unity. He unites us as a people in Christ. That's one of the beautiful things about Ephesians 2. He's talking about people being brought together as the temple of God in unity. He unifies people. He reconciles them to one another. Like, you think about the, 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 the fights that you have, whether it be with your spouse, your kids, or friends, or family members, like, where you need reconciliation. The good news of that is when God draws near, he brings reconciliation. He unites us in love and unity. When God draws near, he brings comfort. He brings peace. He brings joy. In your presence is joy forevermore, the Psalms say. David says, better is one day in your courts, one day in your house. Why? Because in the presence of God is the fullness of joy. Do you find yourself in the need of joy? Does your soul just feel chaotic? Do you need peace? Are you facing pain? 
Do you need comfort? Well, the good news is, is that when God draws near and dwells with his people, he brings comfort. He brings peace. He brings joy. This is the difference it makes when God draws near. And so the question for us, if God has come near, if God dwells with his people, if his purpose in Christ is to dwell in you and in us, are we drawing near to him? Like God has come to dwell with us. Are we drawing near to him? Are we captivated by that reality that God intends to dwell in us and among us? Like, does that move us? Does that change things for us? Are we compelled by that? Or are we indifferent? We're like, ah, no big deal. Are we so captured by our own stuff? Are we so captured by this world? Are we so captured by our own agendas? Are we so captured by our own uh, wealth and our own status and the, the things that our hearts desire? Are we so captured by the things of this world, such so small things? Are we so captured by them that we miss that a high and holy God dwells with his people and dwells with us? What's keeping you from drawing near? Well, what's keeping you from experiencing the good of dwelling with God? Is it guilt? Do you feel too guilty? Do you like, if you only knew what I did? Hey, listen, I don't know what you did, but I do know this, that the blood of Jesus cleanses every sin. There's not a thing that you can do that the blood of Jesus cannot cleanse you from and forgive you for. The blood of Jesus is more powerful than any sin. Don't listen to the lie that your sin is greater than Jesus, because it is not. And so if your guilt is keeping you from drawing near, don't listen to that lie. Draw near through Jesus Christ. Turn from your sin. Repent of your sin and put your trust in what he has done. Is your shame, if, is, is there the sense of like, I'm just too dirty? No. The blood of Jesus cleanses you. Like, listen, here's the great sort of paradox here. Yes, in and of ourselves, we cannot be near God. In and of ourselves, we are sinful. We see the holiness of God. It should provoke in us the sense of guilt and shame. But it's not meant to keep us there. It's meant to drive us to Jesus and see what Jesus has done is greater than the gap, greater than the guilt and the shame. And we put our trust in Jesus and we're washed clean. We can be near to God. We can draw near with confidence, as Hebrews tells us. So don't let your guilt, don't let your shame keep you from drawing near. Christ has made provision for you. But if, if you're just disinterested, if you're just too caught up in the things of this world, if your own sin is just, you, you love it. And that sounds like a strange thing to say, but it's true. We, we love our sin. And that clouds our ability to see the glory of God and desire him. If, if, if your sin just has you such that you're disinterested, here, here's what I want to say to you. One, what you are living for will not lead to life. What you are living for will destroy you. What you, what you are living for will lead you down a path of wreck and ruin. It may seem for a while that it is great. There's pleasure initially. But where that ends is not life. God has so much for, more for you. God is so much more than the thing you are chasing. He's far more glorious, far more good, far more beautiful, far more lovely, and will give you far more life than anything you could chase. And I, I, can't, I wish that there was just something I can magically say to kind of break the spell but the Spirit has to do that, and I pray that the Spirit will, will break that spell so that you can see the emptiness of that and you can see the wonder of dwelling with God. But here's what we also need to recognize. 
the story isn't quite over yet, right? We still live in a world of sin. We still live in a world of suffering. We live by faith, not by sights. We're not directly in the presence of God, though we have been brought up spiritually speaking. We are close to God. We are not sort of physically speaking close to God. There's still this sense of distance. The story is not over. But friends, we have tremendous hope because one day that gap that we experience by faith, it is going to be completely and utterly closed. Here's what John writes in the book of Revelation. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer foreigners. Sorry, that's not the passage I wanted to read. <laughs> Revelation 21, 3 and 4. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them. They will be his peoples and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. Listen, one day there's going to be no distance. God will dwell fully with us and there will be no sin, no evil, no brokenness, no death. All things will be made new. That is the ultimate difference that God dwelling with us makes. It's because God dwells with us that this is true and this will happen. Put your faith in him. Put your hope in him. It is a high and holy God who dwells with his people. And church, this is good news. Let's pray.